I called a big firm the other day, a big, big firm. I got an answering machine that said, you know, leave your name and number at the sound of the tone and we'll call you back after lunch. And you know what I said to myself? Motherfucker, what are they doing? Welcome to a special episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. We got five of the top attorneys in the nation together live to answer questions submitted by you on everything from COVID and its impact in the legal industry, principles for hiring the best people, how they balance working in the business versus on the business, and everything in between. You'll be hearing from me, Michael Mogul, and our guests, John Morgan, Alexander Shannara, Anthony Johnson, Mark O'Meara, and Joe Freed. I've learned recently, we don't need everyone in the world to love working with us. We need the people that are aligned with our vision and our understanding and appreciation of work and what we're doing. We need those people to work with us. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. I'd like to first start off just by introducing everyone, um, although hopefully the majority of people are familiar with just about everyone. Uh, we've got John Morgan, who runs an uh, up-and-coming firm out of Florida and a few other states as well. Alexander Shannara out of Alabama. Anthony Johnson, America's techiest lawyer. Although it's up for debate. I don't know if he, if he still is. And we've got Mark O'Mara and Joe Freed. So thank you, everyone, for, uh, for joining us. Let's go ahead. And uh, I want to start off with just to get everyone's thoughts on just to get it out of the way, and then we can talk about everything else. Uh, just thoughts on COVID and the impact that it will have on the legal industry. Okay, so why don't we uh, why don't we kick off and uh, John? Why don't, why don't we start with you? It's been challenging, but it's been great. And the reason it's been great is because it has forced us to do what we never would have done, but for the pandemic. It has forced us to rely on technology. It has forced us to work at home. It has forced us to measure productivity. And I will tell you this, that during this pandemic, we have never been more productive. We are measuring keystrokes. We are measuring time on the computer. We are watching like we've never watched before. Since March 15th, I have a meeting every night at six o'clock to talk about the day. And I can tell you, we're almost at the end of May, and these two and a half months will be some of the most productive times of our life, not only in terms of resolving cases, but preparing for the other side. We've been filing lawsuits every day in masses, in bunches. And so what's going to happen from all this is we're going to emerge stronger, better, smarter. We will never we will never do what we did before. We will need less office space. We will be more productive. Just because somebody's sitting outside your office doesn't mean they're working. We always thought that. And the older you are, the more you think that. That they got to be sitting there to work. But when you start, I don't I've shared on one of my podcasts the software we use to measure productivity and to to watch what's going on. So as bad as this has been, and we'll never get back the, the, the loss of cases because that's just gone. I mean, when, when the road, that's bad. But for me, I can actually say this turned out to be one of the best things that could have ever happened to my law firm. Thank you, John. And I'll turn it over to, to Joe, Joe Freed. 
you know, I, I agree a lot with what John said. I mean, when when we started out this uh, this situation, I wasn't sure what's going to happen. Actually, in the commercial motor vehicle space, I think there's there's been an increase in crashes. So we continue to get uh, calls about these cases all over the country. You know, but it, it has given us an opportunity. You know, I'm used to being in airports two or three times a week, flying all over the country to do things. And I have had to force on te- to rely on technology. I've had to change the way I was doing things. And for the very beginning of it, I wanted to resist. And what I realized is that's not doing anybody any good to resist. So I just gave into it and said, I want to be the best I can be during this time. That's what I encouraged everybody in my office to do, and frankly, other lawyers around the country who I've done work with. And I think that by and large, people are getting better. They've had a chance to revise their systems and look at things in new ways that they hadn't before. And I think at the end of this, the big the big question is, how do we get back to jury trial work? And we're working on that too now. You know, there's a big resistance to it. Uh, on the plaintiff side, and I get that, and I'm part of that to some degree, but that's what we need to get back to, and we have to see how that works. So we're going to have to be more efficient, quicker, you know, and better. All right. Thank you, Joe. And Mark, I'll turn it over to you. I know you've had a uh, busy few days. Yeah, I mean, it's been crazy busy. No complaints within the firm. I can just say everything that John said and that Joe said. There's no question that within the firm, this has made us immensely more productive. And that's great. Very happy because like John said, we are now realizing some of the fat that we had because we all had fat, but it was all acceptable fat. Now we're realizing that we had to get efficient. But I will tell you this, people on this group and the people on this call are some of the exceptions because I have seen the stories out there of those firms who have not taken this on as a challenge, not taken this on as an opportunity to be and get better and are failing. I mean, I'm seeing it with some of my contemporaries, John, I'm sure you as well, and everybody else looking around for those firms that for whatever reason, look at this as a pandemic and not as an opportunity. So I think those of us on this call, the whole group, all the attendees, need now to make sure that we are doing everything affirmative we can to move the industry along, our profession. Because it is going to be sort of a brand new day for a lot of people. Not everyone's going to survive. But if we can take some of the lessons that we have learned over the past couple of months and those of us who have been somewhat successful for it and try and get that out to the rest of the profession and try and deal with it. Because let's face it, the leaders of the profession have an obligation. The success that we have is now an obligation to try and move that forward a little bit. And we, I love the adrenaline rush of a challenge. Uh, It's served us very well over the past 10 weeks. And now I think it's time to take some of those lessons and move them out to make the profession better. Thank you, Mark. All right, Anthony. Yeah, I look at it kind of, you know, a little differently. So from our operations internally, I don't think it's really changed much, but what I love is, you know, and I've been preaching this for a long time, is we have an industry, not just us, but professional services industries, doctors, dentists, attorneys, that has traditionally lagged in technology. And we had this disruptive event that has forced the entire world to move forward three or four years in the matter of a month when it comes to adoption, virtual, work from home, all these things. Well, three or four years for lawyers is like, we just had to move like 47 years to get there. You know, so it's causing some people that are are kind of flandering was we were so comfortable making enough money doing it the whole way and not wanting to change and being stubborn. Well, like the acceleration in our industry is greater than almost any other industry in the world. 
And so the opportunity in our industry to, to take that on and actually learn and not be comfortable at home and doing it and getting your faxes and your emails and your redundancies and all that, and the same problem with millennial hires and how they hate doing things like that because they know the world shouldn't work that way. And, and this opportunity is that it's taken our industry leapfrogged it 10 years into the future and said, why don't you guys at least catch up not only to the today, but to where we are going to be. And it's letting us all uh, have that chance to see who has it. Excellent. Thank you, Anthony. And Alex, to close us out on this question, how do you see the practice of law changing and adapting as a result of COVID? I look at it like the way John looks at it. You know, our firm is a little different too. You know, every, every firm has a different size and a number of different people. And, you know, we adapted pretty quickly with technology, but each lawyer had a different skill set, each of technology, each person in the firm from a staff standpoint. So we had to make sure that everybody was trained properly and, and showed them that how technology could help them and actually make it easier and how we could be more efficient. Now we had, we weren't able to, and I liked what John said, you know, we can't count the keystrokes. I don't have that much technology, but we have been more productive. Um, we've settled more cases. Uh, so from a revenue standpoint, it has been as good if, and even better than last year. I mean, John said it best, you know, you're never going to recover those cases. If it's 10 cases or a thousand cases, they're just gone forever. I think the legal industry will change because of this. You know, I've always thought it was silly and I understand from a defense side and I respect them. They have to build where you've got to drive three hours just to tell a judge you're ready. And I, where we could just jump on this and in three minutes I can talk to the judge, they can talk to the judge and let's just move on. So I do hope that the states and the courts adopt this. I don't think from a traditional sense, like Joe, I think when it comes to a jury trial, you still need to be there. But for everything maybe less than a jury trial, I really hope the courts adopt this. And then from, from clients and standpoint and talking to your lawyers, this is one of the best things that's ever happened. All right. Thank you, Alex. So now that we've gotten COVID out of the way, because I can't have any discussion without mentioning COVID-19 these days. Some of the other questions that came up that I found extremely interesting is just the questions around how do you balance your time working in the business, on the business, and personal growth? So I know you guys have a lot going on inside the business, outside of it, but how do you balance that time? John, we'll start with you. You got to identify inside of your firm people that you can count on. I call them send-to-lead people. Send-to-lead person is somebody you send something to, you know it's done, and you can delete it. Once you find that person, then you ruthlessly delegate to that person. And the more people you find around you that you can send, delete, and ruthlessly delegate to, once you get to that point, then you start becoming very, very efficient. Because things come to me, I forward almost 90% of everything that comes to me to one of my send, delete people. And then to remember, as valuable as you think you are, Graveyards are full, full of irreplaceable people. Thank you, John. And I, and I know just uh, as, as a sidebar, what John is saying is 100% true because when we first tried to do our podcast, John couldn't do it because he was, he was in Hawaii with nothing but an iPad. He did not even have a computer. He was running his practice from an iPad. This is a true story. And I, I respected John prior to this, but once I found out he had nothing there but an iPad, I was even more impressed. All right. So on that note, Joe, what about you? First of all, I was going to say, what is balance? I don't know because, uh, you know, I, I, my bet is, and, and um, you know, John, I don't know your whole story. I know the parts that I've read about, but my bet is that 
much of your development early on in, in developing what you built was not based on balance. It was based on concentrated effort. Uh, it was based on ridiculous. In fact, I listened to the, the podcast you did with Michael and you talked about the beginnings of getting up at three o'clock in the morning, getting in the shower and going out. And I have a three o'clock in the morning story. In fact, I have a couple of them that were going out and getting cases. And so, so I don't think, I think balance is an illusion. Um, I think that what probably everybody on this, on this call here and many of our brothers and sisters out there share is ridiculous amounts of passion. And so we get our balance in a different sort of a way. And I think that's the, I think that's what being a trial lawyer is about. It's not really about balance. It's about dedication, living a life that's truly a life of being a servant leader, looking at ways that we can we can help the world that we, you know, living in hopefully in gratitude. Um, so to me, I'm terrible at balance. I hate the word balance. I don't want to even think about it because I'm a total failure when it comes to balance. And so I could go on and on, but you get the point. To me, it's not balance. But what is important is you have to pick a few things because it gets so out of balance. You do have to take care of yourself physically and you do have to identify the people in your life who you need to spend time with. And you can't forget that those people are super duper important. There are too many times that I didn't spend time with people in my family and people who were loved ones because I was out doing something for work. Uh, so I don't know how to explain that, but I think that you have to, you treasure what you measure. So to me now it's about trying to take care of myself physically, trying to make sure that I'm there and available for my family, my kids, my wife, uh, my mom, who's, who's up there in age a little bit now, and my staff and these people who are awesome to me, I'm kind of going on, but I reject balance, Michael. <laughs> I think if there was ever a group of people to even bring that word up, the idea of even work-life balance, it's a, uh... It is an interesting concept. Now, I guess to turn over to Anthony Johnson, who has you know, apparently a 3 a.m. story every night because Anthony is up at 3 o'clock in the morning every single night. I don't think he's gone to bed yet. But, Anthony, how do you balance your time working in the business, working on the business, personal growth? So I think it's interesting uh, when you're talking about not really agreeing with balance. So if we're talking about balance of time, what are we really balancing? We're balancing like the time that we're typing or like talking or whatever. You know, I think balance is kind of the key to everything. It's a, I think the idea of a, a, like extreme innovation versus like extreme pragmatism, you know, or, or uh, kind of, a, you know, all the different extremes is kind of how you get there. You don't want to be average because an average just goes to mediocre. But, but if you can take these extremities and kind of counterweight them with practicality and, and make that trajectory one as fast as possible, that's how you get there and innovate and do things crazy. But when it comes to time, I, I like your categorization, Michael, uh, work-life integration. For me, I think if you can really identify what your vision is for your company, what your purpose is, how you're going to, very generically, I'm going to say, change the world. And if you can articulate and get behind something like that, there is no difference. I mean, the people I hang out with, the, the things I do in the day, uh, the things I do at night, they all are aligned with either pursuing that vision for myself, for the company, but also for like our, my family, my children the future, it's all the same thing. So there's no balance of time. It's really just more of a, how do you balance uh, your efforts and your efforts in the business versus on the business, the original question. I think it's tough when you're a big firm, you can obviously get that infrastructure in place. When you're a small guy, you gotta spend time in the business and learn what the hell the business is. You know, you gotta, you gotta be able to do it all and do it all great. And then you get to a size, and I think it's around 25, 30 people where you can start building infrastructure, John talked about, and, 
we're at that stage where we've been working on it a ton. That's where I am now is where I spend zero time in the business. Um, we have people that can run the whole thing and build one of the best firms ever without my insight. But but we do have to dip in and you know give you know kind of steer the ship, make sure we're going in the right direction. But we almost continuously would rather them do it and fail and come back and, and see what we think about it than than do it ourselves because it's just better for growth, better for ownership, better for the whole team. Thank you, Anthony. Alex, what about yourself? How do you how do you balance working in the business on the business? So I'm going to be a little bit like Joe and like everyone else. Look, I don't believe there is anything. I don't think anyone can balance it because there's just too much. I use the word priority. You've got to prioritize what's important. I really like that word. And so I think me individually, I understand depending on the day or depending on the project or where we're going, where I need to prioritize my efforts in the business. And then in the same thing when it comes to personal growth or own the business, I think you know, when you're in a plaintiff's business, well, if there's a huge mediation, maybe you need to be there that day. Or if there's a big trial. The one thing I've learned going across just, just the last five years is where I really started traveling and kind of got outside of Alabama. There's just too much absentee ownership in law firms. And it's just amazing to me. I mean, when you're the name and the face like Joe and John, and I understand we get older and we, you know, we have to take a step back. But they asked me the other day uh, in an interview, you know, what are your work hours? And, you know, I just said, eyes open, eyes closed. And I truly believe that. And so I try to do something what's called, I try to do life with people, which was Anthony was saying, the people I talk to, they're the same mindset of, that I am. And so I'm trying to do life with those people. Those are the people I'm trying to be friends with. I think we've done it all our life and we just don't know it. In high school, you had your friends and then college, you're of the like mind. You're trying to get through college, law school. But it's just who you do life with because you grow off each other. You feed off each other. You learn from each other. That's just the way I kind of handle it on a daily basis. Mark, what do you think? So I suck at balance. Um, I'm not the person to ask how to be a balanced life. Um, and the reason why is because I just really love doing what I do. Somebody asked me one time, you know, if somebody paid me what I make to stare at a wall I would go crazy in about 15 minutes, right? All of us would. We do this not because it's got to keep the lights on anymore, but because we really love doing it. So to me, the idea, I mean, I have to remind myself, I actually have an alarm set on my phone at seven o'clock that says, hey, it's seven o'clock, you're supposed to go home. Every night it chimes, I look at it and I go, another half hour, and should, we love this stuff. So I guess if you're going to seek balance, it's sort of like what John said, you have to get people around you who you trust to give them the work that we would otherwise do ourselves. Cause don't forget, we could all do it all ourselves. Just ask us, trust those people to get it, get it onto their shoulders. And then listen to those people you love and your family, your spouse, everybody around you, your friends to drag you away from where you would stay 24 hours a day to go out and actually enjoy the fruits of your labor. Because like John said, man, those, those graveyards are full and nobody's ever said, damn, I wish I had put in an extra hour of work before I kicked. Um, you got the balance that's got to come. It will not come from inside us. We're not, the genetics aren't there. It's got to come from trusting other people and letting them take you to better places than just your own office. Thank you, Mark. All right. Let's talk about a bit about marketing. I, and I'm pretty sure that no one on this, on this panel is, is at this point probably concerned with where their next case is coming from. But I know that that was not always the case. 
for a lot of people that are attending now, I'm sure it'd be very, very valuable to them to get your thoughts in terms of what would you do now to build your business, to, to bring in more cases in the door if it is inconsistent. That answer could be anything. It could be what marketing gives you the best bang for your buck. It could be you know the way of differentiating your practice. It could be quite literally anything. But what would you guys suggest? And John, we'll, uh, we'll start with you. I have a philosophy about that. And it goes like this. I don't want some cases. I want all of the cases. So I start from that. How am I going to get them all? And you got to really pay attention to data. We get reports on accidents every day. And then we cross-tab that against the number of cases we signed up. And we have a good idea of what percentage of those cases we're getting. If you're not fueled by data, then you're just driving without a map and you're driving nowhere fast. So that's the first thing I, that we pay a lot of attention to. And then you have to make sure as much time as we spend on the front of the house getting cases, the thing that, that blows me away more than anything is people don't spend money at the back of the house. I have a call center that never closes. I have a call center in El Salvador for Spanish, 150 people. Our call center never closes, never closes. We're signing up cases without talking to the client. And so what I would advise people that are listening is we're all out there. We're all kind of doing the same thing to get cases. But what do you do when the call comes at 6 o'clock at night? What do you do when the call comes at 3 o'clock in the morning? How fast do you give back? I called a big firm the other day, a big, big firm. I got an answering machine that said, you know, leave your name and number at the sound of the tone, and we'll call you back after lunch. And you know what I said to myself? Motherfucker, what are they doing? I hadn't heard that. Leave your, we're closed for lunch. We're never closed. We're never closed. So instead of focusing on what you're going to do to get cases, focus on what you're going to do when they call you. Focus on how you're going to make it easier to sign up with your law firm. Because that's where the big battle is. The spillage, the seepage, the waste of not being there to take that phone call. And guess what? People are like plumbers. When you call a plumber, if they don't answer the phone, you don't leave a message. You call another plumber. You call Shannara Plumbing, and they may be right on the way out. Thank you, John. Anthony, tell us, what, what would you do now? I was, when John was talking about how I want all the cases, it was a funny story. I was at a con your, one of your conferences, and I was talking to a guy, and he was asking me what I'm doing with personal injury. And I was like, I was like you know, I did a little bit in Arkansas. I said, but if I can't figure out how to get every case, I don't want to be in the fucking business. And so it's funny when he said that, I was like, I was like good luck, buddy. <laughs> because that's, you know, that's how we all think when we're like this way. So this is how I look at it. You know, in the legal industry, you know, we do car X, that's the bread and butter. I've been talking about warm milk lately. Like you got a lot of the little, a lot of these pussycats that have been drinking warm milk. They don't know where it comes from. You know, they're just making enough money. They're warm and happy and they're drinking their milk. Well, you know, the milk's kind of changing right now. It's uh, the whole world's different. But if you look at this world, same amount of people, same amount of needs, same amount of mouths to feed, same amount of interactions, same amount of shit going on with insurance companies and businesses and everything else. It's just as much business out there. It's just about whether you're 
smart enough to see what people are calling chaos and disruption in, in this new world. And you should be pouring your money into, into being the first guy. This is the gold rush of all these new litigations and, and of this new world. So, uh, you know, how you do it depends on your firm, depends if you have a brand presence. Uh, I've come to appreciate brand more than ever. If you're a smaller firm, you might focus a little more on digital, it's a little more laser focused. So, I mean, when it comes to techniques, it's really case by case, but, but overall marketing right now, no, no one can convince me there's less opportunity today than there was a few months back. All right, thank you, Anthony. Alex, I'll turn it over to you. Essentially, what, what would you do and what do you do to make sure you never have to worry about where the next case is coming from? I would say that um, we're, we're a multi-platform type firm at this point. So, you know, from a traditional sense here in Alabama, we've always been traditionally, you know, I'm, I'm probably, you know, at that age where I was in, you know, the radio and the TV and the billboards and that is, you know, and building the brand and that will always yield a certain amount of cases for us. But in terms of like adopting the uh, digital space and learning as much as I have about it in the last five years and having people like Anthony Johnson that I can talk to and just continuing to learn more about that. So that's something that we really are focused on too. But I've also developed relationships all across the country. And you know, not everyone knows that, but we're in probably a hundred different litigations in the single event space where we know lawyers and they want our help and we get in and if it's maybe for financial reasons or some of our trial lawyers. So it's just the culmination of everything to continue to keep the cases coming in. And if it comes off traditional or brand or digital or relationships, I don't really care. I just want the cases also. All right. And that's a very, perhaps very different perspective. Uh, Mark, what, what are your thoughts? What do, what do you do to essentially not have to worry about where that next case is coming from? Because you've been very busy the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's just been crazy because of, you know, the, the case from a few years ago that, um, you know, John and I sort of talked and joked about it, uh, that the not fallout or whatever it is, the aftermath of all of that has just really kept a flow coming in without much effort. But having said that, from a medium and small firm perspective, I think it is sort of a multi-tiered or faceted approach. And you also have to realize that the audience that we're appealing to is getting younger. I think that if you had to spend a dollar anywhere, you got to start with digital because that's where everybody looks. And you got to realize that they're not even just looking at a text anymore. They're now looking at video. So, you know, we're now looking at how do you get to those people, the 20s to 30s, now even the 40-year-olds who are making up a great market share and getting them in the door. And the way you do that is to go where they look for people. You know, I get a little bit frustrated sometimes because there are a lot of lawyers out there who have 50 Google reviews and they're all four fives and five O's, right? But they have two or three or four years practice. Now, maybe I'm just old school, but does that mean you're a great lawyer or does that mean you're a great marketer? My frustration is it doesn't mean you're a great lawyer, means you're a great marketer. But I think the younger lawyers and those people doing that saying, excuse me, sir, old guy, there's no difference because I will get the cases and then I'll become a good lawyer when it used to be become a good lawyer and get the cases. So I think we have to be realizing and the people on the call need to realize you have to deal with the audience as they are. And today that's digital primarily and getting your name out there in the way that they will hear it. Thank you, Mark. And, and Joe, I want to turn it over to you because not only are you not concerned necessarily where the next case is coming from or 
as we discussed in the, in the podcast, you did have concern, but you were quite literally turning cases away. Yeah, I mean, I, I am not looking for all the cases. I am looking for a needle in the haystack. I, I work on very few cases at a time. I can't believe, you know, my law firm feels huge having nine lawyers now, which is bigger than I ever thought we would be. And we're, you know, as we as you know, we're hyper hyper focused in commercial motor vehicle cases. And so to me, I, I'm not out there. I'm terrible in all these spaces you guys talked about. For me, my life is about relationships with other lawyers, and that's where I get my cases from. I spend a lot of time teaching in my space. I spend a lot of time trying to educate in my space, putting on programs in my space. And when I do that, I'm not doing it really to market. I'm doing it with the heart of really trying to help raise the way my cases that I know a lot about are handled. Every now and then, something comes to me or my firm you know, from that, but we turn away most of the cases we're offered. And so my advice to people who don't feel like they can, quote, compete in the markets that people like John and Alex and, 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 and others are in because they've built these incredible machines to be able, and they're constantly thinking and they're constantly advancing the ball, is to think about wh what differentiates you. The question that I think should permeate you is why should and who should be hiring you for what? And it should be based on your passion. And because, you know, in my space, I'm extremely passionate. I'll go up against anybody in the world and I'm likely to get the case if I get a shot at it because I've got a lot of experience in this area. I've got great results in this area and I've got huge passion. I'm a subject matter expert in my little area. I think that focusing on where your passion is ought to give you insight into where you might want to focus your marketing efforts. If you have lived a life where you know, you've developed a passion for certain types of people, for certain types of situations, maybe you want to build a whole practice around that. Maybe you want to look for needles in a haystack instead of every case that comes in. And I, I mean, it's just a different approach. I don't know that one's right and one's wrong. But for me, I mean, I focus on very few cases at a time and I try to maximize them. And when I, when I coach and mentor younger lawyers who are coming up, what I tell them to do is focus on their passion because that's what's going to ultimately help them distinguish themselves from other lawyers in the marketplace. And then once you have that, now you can work on a strategy to how to get it out digitally or otherwise. But you gotta first answer the question, why should they hire you? And I, I bet you if you went back through the line, I'm not asking you to do it, but I bet you if you went through the line, every one of these guys has an answer for why, why people ought to hire their firm. And it's going to roll right off their tongues and it's going to be a passion statement. It's not just going to be a technical statement. It's going to be a passion statement. So sorry to roll on there, but my, I'm just in a very different spot. But I, I feel tremendously blessed. I think I've done cases now in 37 states. And um, I love working with other great lawyers all around the country. It's great. Hey, real quick, just to tie in, I asked Michael if I could just chime in, but I, you know, I think I think there's a marriage in the two. You guys, you know, you have initial litigation. Mark, you're talking about digital. Um, John, you're talking about you know the process scalability. You know, Alec, you do a little bit of both. The fact that, like Mogul says, best cases go to the best marketers. It's a fucking fact, right? So that is the truth. That's reality. And there's so many people who try to change reality. That's not happening. The guys that can't market aren't going to like be so good or learn their story or tell their niche in a way that's going to get those people to call them. So if we all have this self-awareness and like if we can gather cases and get attention and market, 
that's fine. But also know that there might be a guy like Joe that if I get a trucking case and I'm like, I need to get to him, this guy and get him involved. You know, if you can be great at what you do, work with guys that are the best travelers or hire this best traveler and hire that skill out. But if you don't have it, don't pretend you do. I think the whole industry wins and the clients win because I don't think that that's changing at our age. The younger guys growing up, uh, again, the best marketers are going to get the best clients. That's going to happen more and more and more and more. So, and I know when we talk about marketing, it's interesting because somebody who runs a marketing company. I think, I think at the core of it, at the root of any problem really is people and at the root of any solution is people. So John, you, you hinted at this earlier, but I want to ask you guys some questions around just your principles around hiring people. What do you look for? And then how do you create an aligned culture? Because I think if you can get the people aspect right, it seems like everything else is, is solved. That's the million dollar question. And look, a lot of people come in and look great, smart, witty, but they don't have a drive. They're lazy. You can't spot lazy. You can't see lazy. Some of my greatest disappointments have been lawyers who looked like they were the total package, but there was an empty package. What I have found out in my firm is this, and we spent a lot of time, and the reason I built my proprietary software, Litify, which I'm now selling, all you guys, you know, Joe's the trucking guy. He's the main guy. Everybody knows he's great. But when you hire Joe, if it goes down the door to lawyer nine, does that lawyer do this case the same way Joe would? And the bigger you get and the further you get down the hallway, all of a sudden you got different lawyers doing it a different way. And what we have focused on with Litify and culturally is that all of our lawyers are going to do it our way every day. And with Litify, my son, Matt, he sits with three screens all day long and he monitors everybody's inventory. In Florida, we have proposals for settlement. If somebody doesn't have a proposal for settlement, we want to know why. Because we're putting proposals for settlement on every case. Some states don't have it. We want to know if premise cases, was a witness statement taken, was pictures taken, was a factors expert brought out in the first three days? And if not, why not? And where we make our mistake is that we think just because people walk, walk around, dress nice, looking like us, that they are us. And they're not. And they all have a different business agenda. They all have different financial needs. You know, some people go through your, go through your firm and see who's participating in 401k. You may find some people aren't participate. You know what that means? They're stupid. If you're matching 50 cents on the dollar, I told them one time, I said, listen, if there was a bank and you if you put a dollar in, you got a dollar 50 receipt. I mean, I just would be up there doing donuts around the, the, the drive through teller all day long. I just be just, all I do is deposit dollar bills all day long. What you have to do is not assume that just cause they're in your building, that they're doing it your way every day because they are not. Thank you, John. Agreed. All right, on the people people side, Mark, we'll, we'll go in a different order. I'll turn it over to you. I liken it to picking a jury. 20, 35 years ago when I started, I knew how to pick a jury. Look at him, give him my gut, pick this one. She smiled a little bit or he nodded, and that's my jury. And I think that's what I used to hire employees. Stupid, we now know how stupid a, a process that jury selection was, right? 
Nobody would do that today. Now we use metrics. Now we use social media. We use experts sometimes. We use consultants. In the same sense, picking an employee uh, has to be based on metrics outside of your own gut feeling. And Michael, I credit you guys at CRISP with this, you know, using Colby, using print, using these things that, that when I first heard about them, I resisted them because it's like, I don't have time for that. Just get them in and I'll train them to be who I want them to be is absurdly stupid. It's picking a juror without knowing anything about them. You have to use those metrics to get them in because John, you're right. There are times when they come across, I just hired, uh, just got some interns going in, three of them. And you look at them on paper and it's like, well, they all look sort of good, but you got to run through the process and you got to realize what your own personal limitations are in getting good employees because you don't want to get the empty package that John was talking about. It looks great on the outside. You got to get somebody that these metrics, whatever ones you use, I like Colby and print, are the ones that give you the insight, not only who they are, but as importantly, I realized, and I never knew this, how they do fit into the rest of the team. You know, we've got about 15, 20 people working here, which is small enough that it's a team uh, where we see everyone sees everyone every day. Um, and you have to have someone who fits in. So do not rely on your gut. Use those services that are out there that'll help augment it. Thank you, Mark. And I'll turn it over to Anthony. It's someone that I, I'm surprised we, we got to embrace the hiring assessments and Colby and print. But Anthony, what, what are your thoughts in terms of finding and hiring the right people, building an aligned culture in a 60 second answer? Because I know that could yep. be a whole podcast. Yep. <laughs> now it's funny, that print thing, I've, I've always hated them. But, uh, you know, I leaned in, we did it. And it was funny, my one of my core things were like self-reliability. Like I've always been able to kind of guys like I can do it myself. And like Mark was saying, you know, we all think we can do it ourselves. But when you start scaling, you realize if you're trying to do something, you want to be a small team and, you know, make some incremental impact, that's fine. But if you're trying to do anything significant and you want to scale, no one can change the world by themselves. And so I agree with what, like what John's saying, what you guys are all saying is that if your key people, your leadership, depends how big you are, if, if they aren't the type of personality, I've learned recently, we don't need everyone in the world to love working with us. We need the people that are aligned with our vision and our understanding, appreciation of work and what we're doing. We need those people to work with us. And I always like the analogy about uh, like Jobs and Tim Cook and have it different. You know, Jobs was one of those guys where if you didn't talk back and like, you know, challenge his opinion or whatnot, you didn't work with him, right? Because that's the kind of guy he was. Whereas Tim Cook was the kind of guy where he would wait to the end of the meeting and the one guy that wouldn't say anything, he'd say, hey, what do you think? I'm not that guy. <laughs> I'm the guy that like, you need to challenge me. I'm gonna be fucking pissed if you didn't challenge me and I did something wrong. That's really on you to not making me stop and think about it. So, so when it comes to people, we love our people. Our people are great, but we had to realize like we want these people. We want people that are overachievers, that are accountable. We want people that uh, that have that care about their job. And when you find those people and you gear your culture around those people, yeah, uh, you can really start to run. The self awareness thing, like I said, I think I can do anything. But I realized like you know I did litigate it first, but then I stopped and I was like you know we didn't have that capacity, and so it was hard for me to say all right. I need to bring someone in that, you know, that's a partner of mine to fill this role that can litigate cases. So like, you know, about a year or two back, we decided to partner up with a guy named Hunter Linville. He worked a huge firm. But when he came on and actually started litigating, the, our functionality, our capacity, our growth and our acceleration was tenfold. So the right person to be self-aware enough to admit you can't do it, that builds the right team. And that's the only way to do anything significant. Anthony, thank you. Joe, what, what are your thoughts in terms of... Uh finding and hiring the best people, building a, a culture of success. 
So I, I used to be absolutely horrible at it. And one day I was on a flight across the country and I looked at the guy sitting next to me. I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a professional hirer. That's all I do. I go, I get hired to hire people. And I said, man, it's like Providence, that providential that I'm here with you. I need your advice because I obviously suck at it. And he said, well, I'll tell you right now what you're doing wrong. I said, please do. And he said, you're hiring for potential. You're hiring people who you look at and you say, that person ought to be great and they have it in them to be great. And you'll mold them into being what you need them to be. And he said, he said, sometimes that works. Most of the time it doesn't. He said, you have to spend a lot of time before you hire somebody really breaking down and figuring out what are you hiring them to do? What are the essential characteristics, skill set wise, personality wise, ability wise and experience wise that equal success? And you have to look at it both in how they fit into your team and individually. And all of those, depending on what their role is, you have to make sure you're meeting those things. And then you have to test for it objectively. And it can't be the gut, the gut reaction. Now, for me, I hated that because I'm a gut reaction guy, just like Mark was talking about. I totally agree. I want to hire, you know, I want to, I want the person just felt right to me. That's always the wrong call. At least it has been for me. I also, by the way, really agree with what John said that when you have a practice like mine and I'm not going to have, I'm, you know, my, I told you my practice is huge at nine lawyers and he's right to say, what do you do to concern yourself to make sure that people are doing things right, you know, the, 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 the right way. That's why when I bring somebody in, I spend a year and a half with them, even if they have 20 years of experience and they come to our side, I'll spend a year and a half the process of me trying to put what I've learned about this thing called the plaintiff's practice of personal injury law specific to trucking. That's how much time goes into that employee direct from me. So it's a huge commitment to do it. So I think that you got to you got to pick right and then you got to invest in the people once you get them and make sure that they are getting not a surface level. Just what do you do to check the box? But why? and really get them understanding that at the back end. Thank you, Joe. Alex. So this is kind of funny. So uh, not too long ago, I, I wrote down on a piece of paper and I went right down the middle and I put you either were like in the winner category or the loser category. And I went through every lawyer that I've ever hired in the 20 years I've been in practice. And uh, I'm only batting 50%. So my instincts are just, you know, one out of two. I mean, the good thing is over time, some of those people have left. So you're continuing to build a good team. But, you know, the adage of it's hard to find good people. That's a true adage. And obviously we've adopted, you know, with our relationship, we do the Wonderlick and Colby and print, you know, some of that for the staff and some for the attorneys. But what I've learned is, you know, John said in his book, and it's a compliment, he said, you know, some lawyers have an insatiable appetite. In his book, You Can't Teach Hungry, and some have a satiable appetite. And I've learned that the hard way. There are just certain people that, you know, if they make a certain amount of money, they're very happy going home at 5 o'clock. You know, their art, their craft, their skill is somewhat important to them. It's not that important to them. You know, they miss the passion that Joe's talking about. It's just a lot of factors. You know, when we did, when I did my attorney evaluations right before COVID hit, it took a couple of months. It was, my question to them is, Tell me what you want, because unless they want it, it doesn't really matter. They've got to want to be better. They've got to want to be in this space. And you have to, you know, lead them 
And then the last thing I would say is, you know, everybody's got a number. I, you know, I ask of that, what's your number? You know, and there's certain people, they're like, well, if I just had a million dollars in the bank, you know, they think they've made it. And they're happy because it, they can get the wife they want here in Alabama, that is. You know, they can have the house. They can have the car. They can take their one or two vacations a year. Uh, they can play golf with their buddies. And they're just very happy. You know, Michael, you and I talked about that all the time. And it's, it's very difficult and challenging. And with this young generation kind of coming up to the millennials and some of these young lawyers, they, I'm only 53, but I'm old school. That's just the way I was trained. I mean, I still use a paper and a pencil sometimes. I mean, that's just who I am. But uh, I enjoy it, and we are doing everything in our power to align ourselves with people of the same mindset and the same vision as, say, Sarah and I have. Thank you, Alex. All right, we've got time for one more question. We've got about 10 minutes left. And so I want to ask you guys, what is the single best piece of advice you've ever received and also the single worst piece of advice you've ever received? John. Best piece of advice that I can give and that I've received is many times we make decisions in our practice, in our firm, and what we're thinking about is what's best for us. A case comes in. It's a big trucking case. It's in a, you know, a faraway, even a faraway state or in our state. Do you keep it or do you refer it out to the best? Mesothelioma case comes in. Do you keep it or do you refer it out? And so the best advice I received is when you do what is best for your client and not what you think is best for you, your client will do far better and your firm will do far better. I got into the mesothelioma business. And I can get cases. That's what I'm good at. I can get six to 10 a month. And I do. But I was thought, well, I'll just keep and take 100%. I got midway down the deal. I go, you know what? I'm not doing anybody a service. And one day I packaged them all up and gave them to the best MISO lawyers. And I continue to give them to the best MISO lawyers because it wasn't what I do. It wasn't the best for my client. And guess what? My referral fees, I'm convinced, are better than my net fees would have been me doing it myself. So best advice, do what's best for your client every single time you're doing what's best for them. And surprisingly, you'll be doing what's best for you. Worst advice is, I don't know. I mean, I've had so many bad pieces of advice, but I'll just tell you, what always does us in, what always does us all in is greed. In my life, I've been involved with three sociopaths in business. The reason I was involved with them, I was just greedy. I knew they were flawed. I knew they were damaged. I knew they were, but you know what? I was so damn greedy. I didn't even let my own instincts. In my book, You Can't Teach Vision, I got a chapter called Dog Shit, and it goes like this. If you smell dog shit, there's dog shit. Thank you, John. <laughs> All right, Mark, best advice, worst advice. Best piece of advice I ever got was I got brought into a judge's chambers. I was three or four years out. I'll tell you who it was, Judge Emerson Thompson, John, you know, um, sat me down and said, pretty good lawyer. I think you got a good future going on. That was the second time you walked into my courtroom a couple of minutes late. And he goes, 
you can't do that. You can't do that to me. And more importantly, you can't do it to yourself. Uh, so we, it was a hassle of sorts, but it was the best piece of advice I got because it was not only advice to me, but it, was, it gave me that pride in the profession. And I've carried that piece of advice with me all the way through. And I think about, I've thought about it today. I think about it a lot because it keeps you focused on being as good as you can be and not getting lazy. Worst piece of advice I got was when I was a prosecutor and then became a defense attorney, criminal defense attorney. And the guy who was a prosecutor supervisor said to me, look, we are gladiators. If your client wants a trial, they get a trial. And as a young lawyer, that sat on me okay, because I want, I'm a gladiator. I want to be in a courtroom. My nirvana, like I said, get me in a courtroom. That's where I wake up. That's where I want to be. But we have a more affirmative obligation to that, to our clients than just being a gladiator. Because people like gladiators, but not necessarily should every case be fought to the death in a courtroom. I think we have an affirmative obligation to all of our clients to be the voice of reason when necessary, to take them down a path of less controversy if we can and resolution when we can. I'll try any case anyone wants, but I think we have that obligation. So now I look back at that piece of advice that I sort of like to begin with and realize that's crap. That's just, you know, taking out the ax when a scalpel is what you should have in your hand. Thank you, Mark. All right, Joe. I think the best advice that I've ever gotten has to do with credibility. And the idea is that if you want to be perceived as the most credible person in a courtroom, in any environment, that the trick is to get up and decide that you are going to be, come hell or high water, no matter how much it hurts, the most credible human being in that courtroom or in that environment. And that over time, you will benefit so much more from that credibility, from that decision than you will from anything else. And so I've, I have tried to live that way, at least for the last 15 or 20 years. For me, it was a process to become more better and better at doing that. I don't know what the worst advice that I ever got is, but what the worst thing that I try to do as a lawyer is to try to be a different lawyer, try to be somebody else. I have some phenomenal mentors who, who have raised me and I tried to copy those mentors. And it finally took me, it took me getting to a point where, you know, there's, there's some people say, so, you know, something about be yourself unless yourself is an asshole and then be somebody else. Um, but the truth is you gotta be yourself in this field and you've got to, you know, nobody can be anybody else. And so what I'm gonna say is the worst advice is the mindset of trying to emulate somebody else. And instead, give that idea up, learn what you can from other people, make it yourself, make it your own. Be you. Thank you, Joe. All right, Anthony Johnson. I'll start with the worst. Um, I think as I was growing up, you know, I was always a little irreverent for school. And so I would always have people tell me, you know, if you would just do what you're told, you have so much potential. You know, if you just do follow the rules or whatever. And it's funny because that, that's probably what made me say, you know what? I'm not going to read that fucking book. I'm not going to go to this stuff, but I'm still going to be like top of my class. Like I may be very like competitive to prove them wrong. And then as you get into the real world, uh, we are kind of trained through the schooling system, like follow these rules, like be factory workers. Essentially, we're kind of getting trained. And so, so I, I don't like that advice. I'm not a big fan of traditional schooling. Uh, you know, I think that this idea of challenging the way it is just because the way it is, is, is bad advice for someone that wants to do anything uh, disruptive. And then 
some of the best advice I ever had that I didn't realize at the time was when I was, I was getting into business and one guy, it's a common quote. And he said, you are the average of your five closest friends. You know, and I started thinking about that and I was, and I started really thinking the more I spend time with people that are driving to do things that are trying to do more, the better I became. And then I kind of mixed that with my, my competitive spirit, you know, how competitive I am. Um, you know, cause all growing up, like, you know, I was on chess team, but I was also a quarterback of football. Like I was good at everything. And so I would rather be the worst player playing with like Derek Jeter on a baseball team than the best player playing with a bunch of terrible people. So when I get into the industry or if I'm doing anything, playing a video game, whatever it is, like I want to play the best person in the world and I want to beat them. And if I don't do it today, I'm going to do it next time. Um, and that's how I feel about everything I do. And I think it was that, that approach that got me there. Um, I guess my one caveat would be two things um, to get there. I, my mom, when she was young, I used to make it as a joke. She would always go, you know what? You have such a good heart. But that is the truth. Like you have one reputation. So as you get there, you don't do it by cutting someone's legs out. You'd be the best by beating them at the game fairly, uh, doing what's right. Um, and I think that's that's really important. The other thing is self-awareness. I preach a lot in this industry. You know, we're smart people. We're successful. We are we have these uh, egos that let us go David Goliath against people. So it almost inherently causes people to say, oh, I can do anything. Well, you, you can't, man. <laughs> you can't. You can't do it by yourself. So self-awareness. If you layer on self-awareness, layer on don't lose your reputation and, uh, you know, your heart, uh, then be a fucking animal and go after everybody. <laughs> that's that's the best advice. And then surround yourself with people that challenge you to do it. All right. Alex, best advice, worst advice? The best advice I've gotten was from a couple of, you know, mentors that I had the privilege of knowing. You know, one was a, a guy that was a judge for 20 years, and I worked at a law firm called Corey Watson my first five years, and his name was Charles Crowder. And he told me, that he always said this to me, procrastination is the bane of all lawyers. And then, boy, have I learned that lesson myself personally and have seen it forever. And I know every person who has a lawyer here uh, in regards to procrastination. Yeah. Another one, there was a guy here named Lanny Vines, and, and Lanny Vines was an incredible plaintiff's attorney for a long time here in Alabama. I think he's, I know he's still alive, but he's not practicing anymore. He may be 80 years old now, but pretty much all the great trial lawyers came from his lineage here in Alabama. He, I had the opportunity to meet him, and he told me this, and I really took it to heart. He said, the most money I ever made were the cases I didn't take, and that has always stuck with me when I try to get in certain projects because everything looks so good, but it's not always, you know, gold or rainbows at the end of, you know, the projects we're going to get in or the single event cases. I think the worst advice, I know it's the worst advice is I listened to some people that I shouldn't have listened to who told me that you can take what you've done in Alabama and you can just duplicate it in other markets. And I was like, yeah, it's, it works here. It can work everywhere. That cost me a lot of money. And uh, what I learned is duplication, even though people always try to duplicate things, you have to know the terrain you're in. You have to know what space you're getting in. Duplication does not work. It works in some things, but uh, maybe manufacturing, but not in the legal business where you're dealing with human beings and so many other factors. I want to give a huge thank you to our guests, John Morgan, Alexander Shannara, Anthony Johnson, Mark O'Mara, and Joe Freed for coming together for this unbelievable conversation. I will say the way in which we closed out hearing about their best advice and the worst advice they ever received was particularly insightful. And if you're curious, the best advice I ever got 
was to stop taking advice from people who don't have the results. And the panel that you just listened to, these guys do have the results, so I certainly encourage you to listen to their insights. Now, worst advice I ever got, take it easy. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. You can find more information about today's episode and our speakers in the show notes or by visiting GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking to Hall of Fame trial lawyer, television and radio host, progressive activist, best-selling author, and senior partner at Levin Papantonio, Mike Papantonio. They're telling me what they're going to do with my cases because they're class action lawyers, terrible mass tort lawyers. And I remember the arrogance and the audacity of this character standing up on the stage telling me what I was going to do with my cases and how he was going to handle it. I remember grabbing the mic. I was a kid. But I remember grabbing the mic and saying, Mr. I don't even know who you are, but there's not going to be a time where you make a decision for me as a trial lawyer what I'm doing with my cases. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Mm-hmm.